Let's just bow together, shall we? Thank you, Father, for your provision, your goodness, the way you supply our needs, the way you have met our needs even tonight as we've shared together in prayer. And now as we study your word, we pray that we may have hearts that are attentive to that which we would learn. We pray that the Spirit of God might be our teacher, that we might be responsive to all of that that is learned tonight, might be able to put it into practical use in our lives and in teaching others as well. We'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Now, you recall that we have been studying for several months now the subject of discipleship. And uh, we studied it in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And now we are uh, talking about what we might actually do in sitting down with a person in trying to uh, bring him to a certain level of spiritual maturity, build into his life. We're talking about some of the things uh, that uh, you might want to include in uh, 10 appointments that you could have with an individual after his conversion to try to lead him on in the things of the Lord. And uh, so we've already talked about the assurance of salvation. And then we talked last week about the, the matter of having an appointment with God on a daily basis, teaching him how uh, to begin to develop a well-rounded Bible study program and uh, a program of prayer and uh, really keeping track of how God is working in his life uh, with a prayer notebook and so on. And now tonight we want to talk about the church. Uh, you may think it's strange that we would put it off this long. We're assuming, of course, uh, that you would try to get such an individual involved in a church right away. And I think that it's very important that uh, you realize that the matter of uh, uh, assurance of salvation has a very high priority as far as these appointments are concerned. And the beginning of a devotional life has a high priority, and so does the church. Unfortunately, you can't teach everything in one session, can you? And so we've put it in this order. We believe that it's very, very important that a new convert, as far as that goes, an old convert, uh, get involved in the local church ministry, that they find the importance of the local church. And uh, I want to say this right off the bat. Please don't get the idea and the impression that what we're saying is that a person must come to your church. Uh, that may not be convenient. Maybe he lives across town. Uh, for, too far to really be practical. Perhaps uh, some of you that work in San Francisco have led someone to the Lord there. Well, it's probably not practical for most people to come down to Valley Church. Uh, now, we agree that Valley Church has a lot going for it. But uh, you have to give him instruction in a general sense because your purpose is not only to establish him in the church for the present time, but to teach him in regard to the importance of the church so that his own life is centered around the church ministry. You've heard me say before when talking about winning people to the Lord, sometimes we would just almost like to isolate those people away from some of the old-time Christians uh, so that they would never find out, you know, that it's not a normal procedure for Christians to be faithful in church. There's a lot of people who profess to be Christians, and they do come, but they never let the church become a vital part of their life. And one of the goals that you will have with such an individual is to try to bring him to an understanding of what God's Word says 
so that he will get involved in the local church in a, in a real way. Now, we, when we talk about the church, we have to talk about what the church is. And uh, we have the word ecclesia, uh, which is usually mispronounced ecclesia. Uh, ecclesia has, it has become the pronunciation uh, in English simply because we have words like ecclesiology and uh, we have words like uh, 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 the, the matter of, of uh, various kinds of branches of ecclesiology where we pronounce it ecclesia. And uh, that really is mispronounced. It should be ecclesia, but uh, we won't worry too much about it. And probably we'll mispronounce it ourselves a few times before we get done. But actually, the word ecclesia comes from the particle ek, which is out, and the word klesis, which is a calling. It means a called out people, a called out or an assembly of called out individuals. It was actually used by the Greeks uh, to speak of a particular body of citizens who had a special responsibility in the Greek city-state. They would gather to discuss the affairs of the state. They were, if you please, an elite group, a called-out group, called out from the, the, the body of the citizenry. You see why Christ used this word and why it was carried over in years to come, though uh, the, the, it was not uh, always referred to by the pagans as the church. Uh, nevertheless, the scriptural word for that body of believers, which are uh, the body of Christ, uh, was the word ecclesia. And the reason he used it, of course, is because we have the populace of the world and there is a peculiar people, a special people called out in the name of Jesus Christ. The whole doctrine of election comes into pattern here again. For we are a called out people. We are called. We are, we are saints with a calling. When Paul said uh, that uh, he was writing... Uh, to the saint, to the saints, the called saints, uh, called to be saints, the various people in the churches. He didn't. Uh, the t words to be or the verb there is not there. What he is saying is they are called saints. That is saints with a calling. We are called out ones, called out of the general citizenry to be an elite and special people, not stuck up, not uh, pugnaciously different, but a different people because we are a holy people, a people called to be set apart for his name. That's the concept of um, ecclesia. Now, there were three pertinent things, at least, about the ecclesia in the Greek world. Number one, it was a local group. It didn't involve the country or the empire. In fact, the empire, one of the laws or rules of ecclesia, was simply that the empire was not allowed to interfere in the affairs of the ecclesia. The ecclesia uh, met together for their purposes. And though they could not rule over the empire, nevertheless, they were called to be a special set-apart people to have freedom to discuss the affairs of state and to bear influence upon the state in their limited way. And uh, so it was the local citizenry of one city uh, the emperor did not send a representative to sit on the ecclesia. And by the same token, the state today, or the country in which we live, has no ecclesiastical right to come in and interfere with the affairs of the local body or the local church. 
It was also an autonomous body. That is, they were not responsible to other uh, ecclesias, uh, wherever they might be. Uh, they, they were not, it was not a matter of one having uh, dominant rule over several. Each particular ecclesia was a unit in itself. And, of course, the church is to be the same. And even though there, is the, uh, there, there has been uh, abuse of that and misuse of that in certain, adomi- uh, I, I was going to say abominations, uh, certain denominations, uh, <laughs> you heard about the little boy, didn't you, that said, I, I'm a Methodist. What abomination are you? <laughs> That's what I was thinking of when I almost said that. But <clears throat> nevertheless... Uh, the scriptural teaching and the teaching with the background of what ecclesia was, was that each local body was an autonomous group. The third thing was that they had definite qualifications in order to be a part of the ecclesia. They had a whole list of things that were particularly important and must be true of the individual in order for them to be a part of it. It is not unusual to, uh, it was not unusual in the Greek world to keep individuals out of Ecclesia because they were not qualified. The same thing is true in the local church today. That's why uh, we have an orientation class and why we have an examining council and why we, we question people concerning their salvation. We have them write out their testimonies and all of those things because there are qualifications for the joining of the local church. It's a very simple matter. And it, uh, it has the same basic concept. Although Ecclesia in the Greek world was political, and Ecclesia, as far as the church is concerned, is, of course, far different. So the implication of the church is that it should be a local independent body made up of members who qualify. That is what Ecclesia really is. Now, I want you to understand that ecclesiastically, through the years, there has been a much change that has taken place so that it has become almost commonplace, for instance, for people to point at this building and say, that is the church. No way is this the church. This happens to be a building, which is a church when Christians gather here, but it is not in any way, shape, or form a uh, sacred house. And... uh, Though, uh, like you would with any piece of property, you want to care for it. You don't want the children carving up the pews and things of this nature. That's just normal courtesy. But we, we cannot teach our children, incidentally, that you don't carve the pew because it's a church. You don't carve the pew because it is, in a sense, public property. It is something that, is, that is, uh, it, it should not be, uh, not be harmed for that reason. But you see, if you Friday night when you get your uh, history of Valley Church, which, by the way, turned out beautifully, the little book on the history of the church uh, that we'll be giving away on Friday night to, uh, uh, as we gather for our, our potluck, um, we, uh, you read that story and you find out that in the early days of Valley Church, the nursery was in a bowling alley, the Sunday school was in a dance studio, in fact, in the, nursery, or in, the, uh, in the Sunday school, if you went close to the wall, you could hear the clinging of the cash register from the liquor store next door. And, of course, the church itself was in a storefront building. That did not make that any less a church. 
than what we have when we have our own property and all the rest. But unfortunately, uh, the, the word church, the English word church, has the connotation coming from the Latin and from the Greek. Uh, ultimately, the Greek word uh, which had to do with lordship, kurios, uh, came over into the Anglo-Saxon to be called the kirk, and then the church uh, came from that. That's where our word church came from. And it meant that which, uh, which uh, uh, has a lordship over it, or that which uh, is the Lord's. And uh, so more and more, the word came to mean the building. But that's not the scriptural meaning of the word ecclesia. Ecclesia never referred to where the people met. It always referred to the people. It made no difference where they met. So this is not a church. We are the church, and uh, we are the church gathered as we meet here. We are the church scattered as we go beyond. Now, you have to make it clear to a new convert, particularly if he's had, a, shall we say, a high church background in some rather formal setting. You must make it very clear to him what the church is. And so make this a part of your presentation, whether you go into all this detail or not, not necessary, perhaps for some, but you want to be sure he understands that the church is him, not the particular geographical location where he may go. God may call such an individual to the beginning of a church in a storefront, or to the beginning of a church in a home, or to something of this nature, and we wouldn't want him to think that if it doesn't have, uh, you know, a thousand seats and a platform that's raised and a pulpit and a sound system and a choir and all of those things, that it's not a church. That is not what identifies it as a church. The thing that identifies it as a church is that it's a local, independent, autonomous body of people who qualify to call themselves a part of the biblical ecclesia. That is what makes up a church. And that's, of course, something that will help him screen the wrong churches, so-called, from the right churches. Now, the word ecclesia was first used in the 16th chapter of Matthew and verse 18. Let's just turn to that. And uh, we have a lot to cover, as usual. We may not cover it all, but it's all there in your notes. Uh, so you can uh, follow it accordingly. We'll run through some of this rather quickly. Incidentally, I should have mentioned to you earlier, and I think I should take time to refer to it. Let me just turn to it in my own Bible. I won't have you turn to it. Romans chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says this, talking about the church now, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. Grace be unto you, and so on. We are called out once. All right, now Ecclesia was first used in Matthew 16. Remember that Christ was at Caesarea Philippi, that beautiful setting with a beautiful waterfall, a place where uh, there was a shrine to a, to a pagan god, uh, and uh, it was a quiet place, a place of restfulness, and uh, also had been, the, had, had been an area where there had been an uh, ecclesia. There, there very clearly in that particular area, uh, when Greece was in charge of things uh, there in northern Israel, 
there had been ecclesia. So the people would understand, to a large degree, the concept of ecclesia. And what he says here is this. After Peter has made his great confession, that is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus answers him, verse 17, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter. Now notice the difference here. Or you won't notice the difference. You might want to make note of it, though. Thou art Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. You are a little piece of rock. You are a stone. You're a pebble. And upon this Petra, a great massive living stone, P-E-T-R-A, upon this Petra, I will build my church. Now he's not talking about building his church on Peter. He's talking about building his church upon the statement that Peter made, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus Christ himself is the foundation for the church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom, which of course the apostles had, and whosoever, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, having to do with the matter of, of, uh, of dealing uh, with, with the development of doctrine in the local church and also discipline. And then he charged his disciples they should tell no man that he was the Christ. This was a turning point in Christ's ministry. And his first mention of the ecclesia. Now, there are several things about Ecclesia that are brought out from this passage. First of all, Christ is the foundation. That is, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, becomes the foundation truth of the church. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, of course, we read, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's no question about the fact that Christ is the one upon whom the church is built. And then secondly, the church is built by Christ. I will build my church. It's Christ speaking. He says, I will build my church. And of course, the church is built. Uh, Over in the book of Ephesians, we'll be seeing this later on in our own study of Ephesians on Sunday mornings, but Ephesians 2, verse 19, it says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You see, Christ is the foundation in the sense that he is the head of the corner. And upon, uh, around that are built the prophets and the, the apostles. And then upon that are built the rest of the members of the church. Now notice, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Again, they're not talking about building a church building. We're talking about building the saints, the saints being built one upon another in the church. So the church is built by Jesus Christ. Another verse in that regard is in the second chapter of 1 Peter. Thirdly, the church is protected by Christ, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One of the things that um, perhaps is not as needful today as it was, uh, say, in the late 60s, but nevertheless, it could, you know, history has a way of repeating itself. Uh, There was a period of time where it was essential that if you led a young person to the Lord, that you teach him that the institution that God has promised 
to bless to the end of time until the church is raptured is the church. He never promised that he would bless a mission organization in the same sense. He never said the gates of hell shall never prevail against a mission organization, against InterVarsity or Campus Crusades or any of these things. These organizations will come and they will go, but the ecclesia remains the same. Now, one of the reasons there's stabilization in, say, mission organizations is because they recognize that they are an arm of the ecclesia. They are made up of people who are part of ecclesia. They are part of the church. But they are serving the church in a particular way, in a peculiar way. And so therefore, they endure by, in a sense, riding on the coattails of the church. But the scripture has never promised that there would be blessing in the, in the unusual sense of total preservation to the end of these various organizations. Don't get shook up when a long-standing magazine who has ministered for the Lord for years suddenly goes belly up. Don't think the end of the world has come. Christ said the gates of hell would not prevail against the ecclesia. And of course, those things are a part of the ecclesia, but they're a fringe part of it. God didn't say that the youth program of the church would not fold at one time or another, especially if the church doesn't have any more young people. It might fold. Oh, how terrible. In fact, face it, God never said that the prayer meeting on Wednesday night would endure forever. It might be a prayer meeting on, Wednesday, on Thursday night or Saturday night or some other time. Maybe Friday morning. I don't know. I mean, he did not say that the gates of hell would not prevail against that. That's not it at all. That is a part of the church, but it's only riding on the coattails of that blessing of God. God never said, never, that the gates of hell would never prevail against the Sunday school. And you see, we've had for, for uh, over a hundred years, churches have had, by and large, Sunday schools. And of course, sure as the world, if we didn't have a Sunday school, somebody would be sure and say, oh, that church has gone liberal. Well, I believe in Sunday school, but I, I believe that we maybe ought to rename it and we ought to have some different, uh, uh, different things. I mean, uh, there's nothing sacred about the word Sunday school. And maybe we ought to, even if we had it on a Friday night and called it Friday night school and did the same thing, what would be the difference? You see, but we have all our sacred cows. God did not say the gates of hell would never prevail against our sacred cows. He said the gates of hell would not prevail against the ecclesia. And as long as the church remains visible here upon this earth, it will endure and there will be a church that will be raptured. Now churches have problems. Churches have problems, no question about it. You can go to most any church and you can find some kind of a problem. But I want to tell you something. The church is not in trouble today. We're not in danger of losing. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And all these other things will come and go. But the church will remain triumphant to the end. And there will always be a remnant from Christendom that will be the true ecclesia 
And until Jesus Christ comes for that church, they will have a message to proclaim and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is proved by the fact that the persecution in the early church simply scattered the flames. They tried to stamp out the church. The best time to stamp it out would have been in the early days. They were put under persecution almost immediately. What happened? It merely encouraged the people to fulfill the Great Commission. They were getting kind of centered in Jerusalem and pretty happy. My goodness, you know, we got a great thing going. We love each other and the Lord's blessing and people are coming to Christ and isn't this wonderful? And they lost their vision. And so persecution set in and they suddenly had to run, run away to places like Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And in the process, they spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, which is what God's intention was in the first place. And the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. But you see, you cannot stamp the church out by persecution. When Constantine came to rule, after all of the dictators of Rome, Constantine saw that it wasn't working, that Christianity was growing stronger under persecution. He decided we can destroy the church by compromise. And to a great degree, he stilled the voice of the church, the, the church uh, as a whole, by, get, by bringing compromise into the church. They had it soft and easy, and they began to get a little, little sloppy. But all the time, there was a contingent of people that stood for the truth. People that were ready to get on the bandwagon when Martin Luther came along in the days of the Reformation and uh, add strength and impetus to that great movement. And down through history, there's always been that the ecclesia that are the called out people who have maintained a message in all eras of history. The Church of the United States largely is losing its influence compared to what it was even 15 or 20 years ago. There's a, a strange change that has taken place in many of the churches of this land. But it doesn't worry me because the ecclesia will endure unto the end. You can be sure that until Christ raptures the church and removes it from here, that the church will continue to endure. Now in the scripture, there are various metaphors that are used of the church. Just touch on these. It's called a family, for instance, in Ephesians 2.19. It's called a bride. That, of course, is clear in Ephesians 5.22-32. It's referred to as a vineyard in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where it talks about Christ being the, the vine and we the branches and speaks in a couple of places there of the, of the uh, believers collectively and therefore speaks of them as a vineyard. It's spoken of as a temple in Ephesians 2, 20-22 as a building in that same passage. We read that a few moments ago. It's a kingdom according to Colossians 1, 13 and Romans 14, 17. It's a flock according to John 10, 1 through 15, and uh, also 26 to 30. But most of all, the church, when it's spoken of in Scripture, is given the concept of the body. We know that largely from 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 27, that whole passage there, uh, the whole text, we put down here 12 through 27, but 1 through 27 really gives us a full picture of the church as a body of gifted people with many members, uh, different members having different functions, and uh, the work of the church being carried on in this way. The scripture emphasizes the local church, that is individual church bodies, 
and also the universal church, which would include all believers everywhere, which would be the accumulation of various uh, groups of ecclesia. The word ecclesia is used 111 times in the New Testament. You might just be interested in, in realizing where the Scripture places the emphasis. Twelve times, it definitely refers to the church universal. Twelve times. No question about the fact that in those passages of Scripture, such as Colossians 1.18, it's speaking of all of the local bodies collectively, and therefore it's speaking of them as a, as a whole. Nine times, it speaks of several churches, not all church, all believers everywhere, but several churches in a body. Remember Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 28, that he, uh, in spite of, I mean, along with all of the persecution and everything he was facing, he said, and then uh, one more thing that I have is I have the daily care of the churches, the concern, the prayer concern, and the ministry concern for the churches. Well, when it's used that way, nine times in Scripture, it, it's referred to that way. Now, that, of course, then, gives us simply 21 times out of 111, which means that 90 times where the word ecclesia is used, it is speaking of a local, autonomous body of people meeting in a common place. It's speaking of the local church. And so the great emphasis of the New Testament is not upon the church universal, but upon the local church. So that, that puts to silence this argument that you hear sometimes from new Christians, sometimes even from the older ones. I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. That's true. You don't need to go to a church building necessarily to be a Christian. There's nothing to do with you being a Christian. But... The scripture makes it very, very clear that the local body of believers is, in a sense, the central place where believers should gather. It has nothing to do with you being a Christian. You're not, you don't become a Christian by going to church any more than going to a garage makes you a car. But at the same time, you must realize and recognize that the local body of believers is the place that God is speaking about when he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together with other believers. I don't care whether that church is in a home, whether it's in a building like this, whether it's in a storefront, whether, it's, whether it meets in a bus. It can still be a local body of believers. There are certain things that the Scripture has laid down in regard to church organization and church structure that should be followed if it's an obedient church. And I think you want to direct your convert to such a place. But nevertheless, as far as, as the church itself is concerned, the person, if he is to grow, if he is to absorb fellowship, there must be in his life a local body of believers. We'll see why that's necessary as we move along here in a few moments. So the predominant idea of the New Testament is the local visible assembly of believers. Now why is the church necessary? There's a number of reasons and we haven't really touched on all of them, but we'll just let this little pattern here be our guide. First of all, organization. Secondly, fellowship. Then worship service, and teaching. These are some of the things that are involved. You remember that in Acts 2.42, it said 
that the people met together for four specific purposes, four specific things that were involved. And these will come out in a part of this here. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that would be teaching, and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread, that would be the Lord's table, and in prayers. The reason they met in that early church was for these four very basic reasons. Excuse me. The result was that fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostle, and all that believed were together, and they had all things common. There was a unity of the body that came about as a result of the practice of these things. So let's just take these individually. First of all, organization. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, much as I hate to ignore the context, we'll do that for a moment. Uh, we don't want to get into all the debate of the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, because then we'll have to teach the whole book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. But uh, let me just pull a verse out of here, having to do now with the disorder in this local church, the disorder that came uh, partially because of the need for proper leadership in the church. But verse 33, it says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, of setting at one, of unity, you see, as in all churches of the saints. Wherever there's a local church, it's God's desire that there be organization. Organization itself is not a bad thing. God wants us to recognize the need of that. Look then, too, at 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. How you ought to behave yourself. Now you look at the context. He is not talking primarily about the, the matter of... Uh, uh, moral conduct or things like this. He is talking about the organization of leadership. Why have I placed leadership in the local church? So that you will know how you ought to behave. That's why I have presented to you an outline and a pattern for leadership. There are qualifications of leadership that set an example. And the example of godly men is one of the prime requisites in the local church. And uh, and so he says, I gave you this so that you would know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. In other words, as you're among believers, there is order. There is a matter and a pattern of the way things are to be done. Now, in regard to organization, and we won't have time to turn to these passages, but they're in your notes, and so you can study them out on your own. First of all, there is the need of organization of church leadership. That's one very important aspect of the matter of organization, the organization of church leadership. And, of course, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 uh, both deal with the matter of bishops, uh, which, of course, is the, the matter of a person overseeing. Uh, the bishop and the elder were, two, were the same people in the New Testament. They were called overseers. 
Uh, and uh, they're also, that has to do with what their function is. And the office itself of elder was the presbyteroi, or the, the, the matter of, of, uh, of caring for the needs of the people, uh, and the matter of their leadership in that position. And so uh, the elders and the deacons were part of this organizational leadership. And that's one part of organization. Another part is to help organize care one for another. One particular area that's emphasized is, is in Acts 6, of course, where the first deacon board was appointed to take care of waiting on tables because there was a need. In other words, the, the gathering together of men, the church gathered together in order to set apart a group of men, in that case seven men, to take care of the feeding of the uh, widows and the distribution of the funds to the needy and this sort of thing. This was their function. And of course, uh, by the same token, uh, in 1 Timothy 5, there is the care of widows that is emphasized in the local church. And that's another area of the care of the church that comes about as the church organizes and as they emphasize their particular ministry. So there's another area of organization. Another area of organization is the organization and the carrying out of the ordinances. There's the Lord's table as an example. Well now, obviously, if, uh, if this were left to the individual to have any kind of consistency in gathering for a period of time around the Lord's table, the custom which is commanded in Scripture probably would have been dropped long ago. The church, there's no reason why you can't have communion with your own family. No reason at all. You are a little ecclesia when you're gathered with your family. If you want to have communion with your family, it's fine. But you see, the church sets the example of gathering around the Lord's table so that it is the pattern and so that we are reminded of it. And if no other time in the month you are obedient to God's command in regard to observing the Lord's table, you are when you gather here the first Sunday evening of every month. See? And of course the church is responsible to perpetuate that as a part of their organizational structure. That's why the early church gathered around the Lord's table, the breaking of the bread. The same thing is true of baptism. If we depended upon each individual, mind you now, there is no reason when you lead someone to Jesus Christ, there is no reason why you cannot call together a group of people and baptize that individual. You don't have to be a preacher to do it. But you see, most people would never carry through on the matter of baptism. So the church provides the avenue whereby people are given the opportunity after conversion not only to learn about baptism, but to, to have the baptismal service. And uh, it doesn't bother me if somebody, if somebody wants to baptize their own converts, you know, down the line somewhere. But you see, you're to do it in front of witnesses, and you're to teach them clearly what baptism means. All of those things are necessary. And so uh, this is one of the things you want to do with your convert. You'll want to talk to him about the difference between real baptism and ritual baptism. You'll want to talk to him about what, the difference between what happened at the instant of salvation when he was baptized into the body of Christ and what happened subsequently as a testimony of that in being baptized. And we'll be having a baptismal service here 
the first uh, Sunday in May. And uh, we have those periodically. We have a class. We teach them concerning baptism. We make this available, you see. You can do that individually. But they should do it in front of witnesses because it is to be a testimony. And so the most logical place to do it is in front of the ecclesia. Okay? That's a part of the organization of the local church. And then, of course, organizing church discipline. How in the world would you ever carry out church discipline if you did not have an ecclesia? Now, Christ mentioned in the 16th chapter of Matthew the ecclesia for the first time. When he gets to the 18th chapter of Matthew, he mentions it again, this time in a context of church discipline. If there is a fence, you go to the individual involved alone. Having gone to them alone, now you take with you several witnesses. Having taken the several witnesses, if they, still, if they hear you, you've gained a brother. If they don't hear you, then you take it to the leadership of the church. Eventually, after that thing is dealt with, it may be necessary to deal with it publicly in the local body. You take it to the ecclesia. Well, now, if you don't have an ecclesia, if every man has his own little corner over here, it's hard to carry out such a thing. It takes the organizational body of believers in order to accomplish this. Now, those are just a few of the things that are involved in organization. And admittedly, some superfluous organization worms its way into the church. And I, as a pastor, as an example, and the elders know this, so it's no secret, but I am all for doing away with superfluous, non-biblical organization. I think we over-organize, and we organize the Holy Spirit right out of things sometimes. And uh, it takes time, though, to bring about change, you see. That's one of my goals, to do away with superfluous organization and bring things on center where godly men are visible to the congregation and thereby can minister as they should in the local body and maintaining those things that are their responsibility. So, anyway, we have organization. That's one thing. And the person needs all those things relating to organization. He needs to have a sharing, caring body with some degree of organization so that he can carry out the work of the Lord within that body of believers. There's check and balance. He does not rise to leadership as a novice, as an example. If a guy who is a new convert starts a church with a whole bunch of new converts, you've got a problem right off the bat. Because no church, no elder is to be a novice. He is to be an individual with some background and experience, particularly in growth in his own spiritual life. So you can't scripturally have a church with nothing but new converts and have a proper biblical organization. Okay? All right, we've got to get off organization here. Fellowship. And again, we'll just touch on these. We gather together partially for the purpose of fellowship. And there's several levels of fellowship. There's fellowship with Christ, first of all. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.9. 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, admittedly, you don't have to be with the ecclesia to enjoy that fellowship. But it is in the body of the ecclesia 
that you have that greatly enhanced as you have others who are also struggling with things in their lives and at the same time maintaining a fellowship with Jesus Christ. And then there should be a fellowship with each other. And there's a number of passages that we've given you there that has have to do with this. Romans chapter 1 verse 12 is a fairly typical one having to do with the fellowship that Christians share together. That is that I may be comforted, Paul says, together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. That we need that. If the Apostle Paul needed it, I know I need it. If Paul needed it, you needed it. You need it. We all need this. There is a, there is a mutual giving and taking and sharing just in being together. doesn't mean we always sit down and have long conversations. But just by being together, the words, encouraging words that you can give to a pastor really enhance his ministry. And as he can give you back encouraging words. Uh, I, you know, I often think in terms of a church our size, and I, I wish we could dream up ways that we, could, we, we would be better able uh, to carry out ministry to people. I was thinking the other day how nice it would be if I could just pen a word of thanks in, in my own writing, my own scribble, to each one of you individually for your faithfulness and for your care and concern and all of that. Now, that's a massive thing, you know. And uh, one of the reasons I don't do it is because it's that mountain in front of me, you know. But uh, you, know, you know how you eat an elephant, one bite at a time. And I, I suppose that's what I ought to do. I ought to bite the bullet and sit down and I write a few letters every day because I appreciate you all so much. Never get a chance or seldom get a chance to really tell you how much I appreciate you all. And uh, yet, that's the kind of thing that is so needed in the body. Well, of course, it would even be better if just everybody in the body would start uh, wasting a stamp now and then. Just writing to people and saying, hey, I just want you to know, I noticed... Uh, the, the blessing you were in teaching that Sunday school class. Hey, I just noticed that, that uh, you, uh, you really got to my heart as you sang that solo, and I wanted you to know how much I appreciate your ministry. And I've looked up in the choir, and I, I realize that you're there every week, and I, I realize that you, 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 they never ask you to sing a solo or anything of that kind. And maybe you're not a soloist, but I just appreciate the fact that, that uh, in a world where you can't count on people anymore, you can look up in the choir and see you faithfully, and you're there every week. I appreciate that. You write that note. If all of us started doing that, just think what would happen. But that's part of fellowship, you see. I didn't mean to say all that, but that's, uh, that's what Paul's saying here, okay? And so all of this has to do with fellowship. If we only could learn to begin to do more of this kind of thing, then we would enhance that fellowship. Now, there's a lot more about fellowship that Scripture teaches. Of course, one of the things that's involved is, is also in the area of giving. The word koinonia is used more in reference to the sharing of our goods, that is, our money and giving to the Lord's work, than it is in sharing our problems and our comforts. And so therefore, the emphasis of the New Testament, again, is more upon koinonia in the sharing of money than it is upon some of these other things. Now, the other things are important also, but a part of koinonia was the giving of money. So that's another area. And, and see, stewardship is so important. Let me tell you why stewardship is important. First of all, God doesn't need your money. He's got plenty. 
And he could make more. Can you imagine how he could mess up the economy of the world if he wanted to? <laughs> he could make gold so plentiful. That's what's going to be in heaven. He's going to use it for paving on the streets. You know, Gold's not going to have much value simply because it's used for asphalt up there. It's so much of it that it's not going to have a lot of value. It's the scarcity of gold that makes us good. God wants to send more gold. He could do it any time and really shake up the world's economy. See, God doesn't need your money. Not at all. And basically, because God does not need your money, the ecclesia does not need your money. Because if God wanted to, he could provide that money apart from you, if that would be his purpose. Well, then why does God require, require in the sense of a matter of, of uh, obedience to, to him, that we share together our money to support the ecclesia? It's not important whether that church does everything you think it ought to. It's not important uh, whether, whether uh, the, uh, the right percentage in your mind is going to missions and the right percentage to the building and all of those things. That is not the essential thing. Giving has nothing to do with any of that. And you never to give just because there's a need. Scripture makes that clear. Nothing wrong with responding to a need. But you're never to give be just because there's a need. Why do you give? Because giving is a reminder to the giver of who owns everything he has and where it all came from. That's all. And under grace, God gives us the privilege of acknowledging that we recognize every good and perfect gift cometh from above. That's it. And that is the basic reason for giving. And you see, the person who does not get involved in the local church and does not get involved in giving to the ministry of the local church does not maintain with any consistency that privilege. The privilege of simply acknowledging God's ownership. So therefore, you are to lay by in store. Do you, do you know why God tells us to give weekly? That's the reason. Now, I don't know whether you, you, whether you give weekly or not. But you say, well, I only get paid once a month. I can't give weekly. That's no problem. See, you are to evaluate every week how God has blessed you. And in accordance with that, you give. And if you only get paid once a month, then you see, you don't have anything wherewith to do it. But you got the reminder... Because every week you sit down, maybe on Saturday night, and you scratch your head and you say, well, let's see, what did happen this week? I had no income. Well, Lord, I didn't have any income, but I recognize that the income that I have potential by the end of the month really is yours. And I, I acknowledge I'll give a portion of it. And then you get next week, again, no income. Next week, no income. Finally, you get a paycheck at the end of the month. And when you get that paycheck, then you have not only the reminder, but you have the opportunity to acknowledge that you have been reminded week by week. So it's no problem. But every week you're to do that. That's one another reason why you ought to be faithful in church on the first day of the week. Because you're supposed to lay by in store on the first day of the week and, and uh, have that prepared to give, even if it's nothing. Okay? But you see, the new believer needs to learn stewardship. He'll never learn it properly unless he's involved in the local church ministry. Got to move on here. Worship. 
Of course, the sacrifice of praise in Hebrew 13 and all of the Old Testament teaches us concerning worship. That's another reason for the church. Service. Do good. Sharing with one another in a ministry. That, of course, is another aspect. That's taught in Hebrews 13 as well, as well as many other passages. Any passage that talks about serving the Lord would come under this heading. And teaching. Of course, Ephesians 4 speaks of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. There are a lot of people who have holes in their theology and holes in their, in their understanding of Scripture simply because of spasmodic attendance at teaching opportunities. That's between them and the Lord. I long since learned that it's my responsibility to give out the Word, and it's not my responsibility to get people here to hear it. Now, when I, we were in a small church, you know, we only had 35 people to begin with. And, you know, if four people were absent, wow, you know, you really felt that. And uh, I used to really, used to really bother me, especially with some of these people, because the ones that really had it together spiritually and probably could have taught me, they never missed. And the people who were struggling spiritually, those individuals were spasmodic in their attendance. And God had to teach me a lesson. It's my responsibility to teach the Word. Nobody shows up. That's their problem. And I can't worry about it. I can be concerned. And I can pray for them. And I can exhort them. And I can do all of these things. But I can't let it get to me as though I have a, a personal responsibility to make sure that everybody gets there every time to hear every message. So that's one of the reasons why when you're gone, I may notice that you're gone, but I may not say anything to you. Because really that's between you and the Lord. A lot of you, when you have to be gone, you pick it up on tape anyway. So that's uh, second best maybe, but it's a good substitute. And we praise the Lord for that opportunity. But teaching, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That's, of course, in private, but also in public ministry as well. So teaching. So those are some of the things that are necessary here. Well, now, here's some reasons why this person, and you too, as far as that goes, should attend church. God commands it. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. There was, there was a bad tendency for people to miss the meetings of the ecclesia in the first century. You thought that was a 20th century phenomenon, didn't you? It was in the first century. But then it says this, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I want to tell you something. Many churches today, because of slack attendance, have been disobedient to what God's Word says. God's Word says, as we see the coming of Christ closer and closer, we ought to do this more, not less. And there's a great attack today upon the idea of, of uh, well, Sunday evening service as an example, or a midweek service. And, and, of course, it's easy to take good things and twist them around to be bad. People say, well, you know, really, uh, I'm a family man, and, and my commitment to the family is such that I... I really can't, uh, I can't be going to church all the time. 
That's right. That's why the church provides for the family to be here. Oh, yeah, but my kids, uh, they just won't sit still in church. Then what's wrong with the discipline in your home, if that's the case? For goodness sakes, I see C.J. laughing down there. C.J. and I have talked about this, you know. He had several kids, and they always went, you know. And uh, they sat them down whether they liked it or not. I mean, it was never, it was never an option. I think I told you one time that there was only one time my mo- that my mother let me skip church. I think that was the time I burned the barn down. And uh, she decided that wasn't a good practice. That was it. We had a Sunday school bus that ran kids to Sunday school and ran them home. If I ever had a bus ministry here, no way would I ever agree to that. The kids need to be here. But anyway, they ran us home. So I said, can't I ride in the bus just this once, Mom? So I went home and burned the house down or something, you know. And uh, I guess it was the barn that I set fire to. And she decided that the place for me was back in church where I belonged. And so that took care of that. No more riding home in the bus after Sunday school. Every time the church doors opened, there we were. My sister played the organ. So I folded bulletins while she played the organ. For centuries, it seems, you know, we did that all the time. We never could come to church like normal people. At 10 o'clock, that was when Sunday school started in that church. Never could come to people church like normal people. Always had to be there at 9 o'clock so my sister could practice the organ an hour beforehand. And uh, that's how I got in the habit of coming so early. That's why we have Greek class at 7 o'clock, because I came here at 7 o'clock. Nobody was here. So I invited a few people to come and learn Greek. You know, I mean, good night. You can't... I'm used to coming to church at 7 o'clock in the morning, you know? But you see, you grow up that way, and children today need to do this. People need to learn that church is a central part of their life. It's a part of your family life. It's amazing. People will think nothing of leaving their kids and going off to a ball game or taking their kids to the ball game, even though it's going to last late. But to do that for church, I'm getting you all geared here because we don't have very many special meetings per se, you know. But we've got Ian Thomas coming for a week and I hope a whole bunch of you just uh, plan to be there for that whole week. Goodness, it's going to be a great week. God could send revival to the ministry of this man. He's, he's been used of God in a marvelous way. He's the greatest chance of your lifetime. And some people are going to say, but i got kids at home. Well, we'll have nurseries and we'll have all kinds of things. And I, I heard Ian Thomas when I was just a boy, and I somehow managed to struggle through and even remember a few things he said. Isn't that amazing? Even though I wiggled. Okay? I used to carry frogs in my pocket to scare the girls during church. But I still learned. You know? So you see, you, can, you need to realize the importance of obeying God's command and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Watch for more. We'll see it coming. Then, God keeps you from extremes through the ministry of the church. Again, we don't have time to turn to that. Look at it. Uh, When you get home, study these out now. We're going to just have to touch on the rest very quickly. They have the opportunity in the local church to see the example of believers, and they have the opportunity for spiritual growth. Now, those are four reasons you might want to add to them, but those are four reasons why... A new believer should get involved, deeply involved, in the ministry of the local church. Where should he go? He should find a church that teaches the Word of God. And there are some basics of doctrine that must not be overlooked. 
The virgin birth of Christ, deity of Christ, the death of Christ is the only means of salvation, resurrection of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the authority of Scripture. Those things are absolutely essential and basic. So teach him to watch for those things. And he should just go with this in hand, maybe to a pastor when he's considering the church and say, do you believe this, and 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 then check out to make sure that it's true. True doctrine, teaching the Word of God. Secondly, there must be a, it must be a church that provides opportunities for fellowship. can't be just a meeting, just a people that, that gather together and uh, hear a message and then go their several ways and never see each other. There has to be the opportunity for growth in fellowship one with another, or it does not fulfill the responsibilities of a local church. Thirdly, the life of the leadership should be consistent with the message. And if it's not, they have no business being there. Boy, that's a dangerous one because that means me too. That means that I, one of those leaders... If my life is not consistent with the message, you have every responsibility to go to another church. You shouldn't be here if you find that to be true. And when the place is empty, maybe I'll get the message, right? That keeps me on my toes, keeps our elders on the toes, keeps the deacons on their toes. It better. And believe me, the church needs to be sensitive to this. Fourth thing is their missions emphasis. If there's not, then they are ingrown. If they do not believe in the Great Commission, where there is no vision, the people perish. Beware of a church that has no missionary emphasis. And then fifthly, is there a love for lost souls? Are we concerned for the lost around the world and right here at home? We want others to come to Christ. Now, those are some of the guidelines. Now, listen, I sat down on this thing, you know, working it over, and I worked up a basic outline several weeks ago on this whole, this whole thing. And the more I got into this, the more I realized that if you're really going to teach somebody all of the things that are involved in the ecclesia, as far as what should be and so on and so forth, you just about have to teach the whole New Testament. And you know how hard that would be for me to do. It's all I can do to get through one verse. So... Uh, for that reason, we just kind of highlighted some of these things. We hope it will be helpful to you. And in this third appointment with, your, with the disciple that you are, the person you're trying to disciple to Jesus Christ, teach him concerning the importance of the church. Get him excited about the church's ministry in our world today. And don't let him get hung up on churches that have been... Uh, dead. In other words, when he, when he says, oh, but I used to go to church when I was a kid, and that was the deadest thing you ever saw. Don't, whatever you do, allow him to excuse himself from going to a church because he went to a dead church when he was young. Rather, tell him, listen, you don't know what you've been missing. And give him a sample by taking him to a church that really teaches the Word of God and let him feel the life of that church. And then, in accordance, help him try to find a church that fulfills these conditions so that he can grow and, and uh, be a leader someday in that local body. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and the provision you've made in your Son, Jesus Christ. And bless now, we pray, as we, again, have opportunity to share these things with others, 
Help us to teach clearly the importance of the ecclesia. And help us, Lord, to be those that, that are clear in our presentation to these individuals that we are discipling so that they, in turn, will be able to disciple someone else. We'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. If you didn't get notes, uh, be sure and get them next week from Mr. Peebles. Uh, he's already taken them back, so you can't get them now. But you can get them next week and get caught up on all the notes, too, if you wish.